Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest X-Men movie, Apocalypse, Disney's sequel to the 2010 remake of Alice in Wonderland, Alice Through Looking Glass, and a quick update on Captain America Civil War. Let's get started. All right, I've run out of patience. On to Ruth! Hey, everyone. So with no other newer releases coming out this weekend, I took my nephew to see Captain America Civil War, and I enjoyed it even more the second time. That is all. Well, you've been busy. We had a little help. Fox's X-Men movies have been pretty hit or miss. The first two, done by Brian Singer, I believe fresh off his success with The Usual Suspects, were decent. I mean, they were good for the time. I haven't gone back to watch them again, so I don't know how well they hold up. I do remember X2 being a little bit better than X-Men, but I haven't gone back. I've never been really too big on the X-Men franchise as part of Marvel Comics. I mean, the cinematic universe has gotten me into all kinds of Marvel stuff, but I still haven't really gotten all that interested in the X-Men franchise. After the first two with Brian Singer, the X-Men The Last Stand with Brett Ratner was a big stinker, and then they followed that up with X-Men Origins Wolverine, the worst thing they've ever put to film for the X-Men as far as I'm concerned. And I think after that is when there's probably like a studio executive change or something. Because after that is when things took a, started, you know, ticking back uphill. We had First Class, which was a throwback to the 60s by Kick-Ass and Kingsman the Secret Service director Matthew Vaughn. And then Days of Future Past, I haven't gone back and watched, but I remember liking it. I thought it was interesting, the dichotomy of the dystopian future and the continuation of the throwback storyline. Although I do remember the whole continuity mess up of them retelling Wolverine's origins, essentially, in the background. And then kind of trying to turn what Singer started into what... Matthew Vaughn started to do with the throwback movies into one cohesive storyline. And that's what leads us up to Apocalypse. There was the Wolverine, which was based on Wolverine's time in Japan. That story arc from, I think, like the 90s. But that's more of a continuation of the present day stuff. X-Men Apocalypse is the third of the throwbacks taking place in the 80s now. And... After the events of Days of Future Past, Xavier has has officially started the School for Gifted Youngsters as a means of trying to integrate humans and mutants into a private school setting. And then we're also introduced to some iconic characters, Jean Grey, Nightcrawler, and Cyclops specifically. Plus, we see Storm, Jubilee, Angel, and Psylocke. And the storyline is... The ancient Egyptian deity-like mutant apocalypse, Aben Binsur or something, I forget what his name was, but, it, you know, he's essentially apocalypse. It starts with him being 
buried in, in ancient Egypt by humans who consider the mutants as false gods. So even going back to ancient Egypt, the dichotomy of humans against mutants has always kind of been there. It feels it, it's what they're trying to tell us. We cut forward to the 80s after everything that's happened. Raven, a.k.a. Mystique, who is essentially just Jennifer Lawrence out of makeup because she doesn't want to do the blue makeup anymore, apparently, because 90% of her time on screen is her without the blue makeup on, which kind of defeats the purpose of her wanting to be known as a mutant. But I, I don't know. It's It feels more like a choice of Jennifer Lawrence not wanting to sit through makeup more than something for the character. But that's just me. She is going about kind of rescuing mutants in uh, Eastern Europe. And there's a storyline with Magneto being betrayed by humankind again. Because that's Magneto's thing. He always gets betrayed by humanity and believes they deserve extinction to make way for mutants. That's his... That's <laughs> If having his parents murdered by the Nazis wasn't enough, now they've got a whole other thing to that they've done to him and his family to warrant his hatred again. All this leads up to Rose Byrne as the CIA agent. I forget what her name is. Miranda McTaggart, I think. She skipped Days of Future Past and returns now as the CIA agent from the first movie and, you know, love interest to Charles Xavier. This time around, because she discovered the occult that worshipped Apocalypse and inadvertently helps to bring about his return. And Apocalypse is played by Oscar Isaac, who's probably... Oh, what would he be best known for now? He's been around in a bunch of stuff. He was um, the pilot character. He was the X-Wing pilot, like the one that helped... that escaped with Finn in Force Awakens. And he was also in Ex Machina with Donald Gleason and Alicia Vikander as the crazy sort of elusive Steve Jobs crazy techno genius guy from that movie. Here he's in full-on Ivan Ooze makeup, but, but, but honestly, the lighting in the movie makes it look a lot better than the promo stills that they kept showing us. And his performance is phenomenal as this sort of, like, De you know, he's a guy with essentially unlimited power, and he acts very godlike in the movie. So Oscar Isaac definitely gives the real standout performance for the movie. So Apocalypse recruits four mutants whenever he shows up. Although the way they, they talked about it, like, he, apparently he showed up a couple times before, but this is his first time since ancient Egypt. I don't... it's all very convoluted, but this time around, his four horsemen, as it were, are Storm, who's the first one he meets in Egypt, who was played by a relative newcomer, I forget her name, but she did a fantastic job as sort of punk 80s mohawk Storm. Psylocke, played by Olivia Munn, and who he meets in, I believe, East Germany. Angel, who he also meets in East Germany, who was one of the mutants rescued by Mystique, along with Nightcrawler from a mutant fighting ring, and then he recruits Magneto. And he bestows upon them more power. He allows Storm to shoot lightning and control weather much better. He, he allows Psylocke, 
more powerful sort of psychic apparitions or whatever they're called. And he gives angel metal wings that can shoot darts. And he he helps Magneto unlock the power to control the iron core of the Earth itself. And, you know, kind of manipulate the metals inherent within the ground. And so the four of them go about the end of the Earth. And caught up in this are Xavier, Miranda McTaggart, Beast, Mystique, Quicksilver, who shows up to kind of seek help from Xavier and gets another slow down sequence that's really fun to watch and really well shot and designed. And the aforementioned Cyclops, Nightcrawler, and Jean Grey. And that whole group are the ones to try and bring down Apocalypse and stop him from destroying the world. I do have some issues with it. A lot of it was with the marketing and which characters they focused on. Because while Fastbender is fantastic, once again, I love what they do with his character and I love his performance in it. Psylocke and Storm, and especially Jubilee, get the real short end of the stick in this movie. Like, they're featured prominently in the advertising. They make sure that everybody knows we got Psylocke, who is, I don't know if the character is half Asian or full Asian descent, but she's played by Olivia Munn, who is, I believe, half Vietnamese, at Storm, complete with Mohawk, a very iconic African-American character, and Jubilee, played by an Asian actress who was introduced in the 90s and was part of the cartoon. And yet, after Storm's introduction, she just stands there in the background and kind of stares intensely and doesn't get a whole lot of actual character dynamic or dialogue. And the same with Olivia Munn's Psylocke. She is kind of a bouncer, uh, you know, a, a heavy for this character who is able to track down all kinds of mutants. And she gets one scene of her being tough on Apocalypse. And then when she's recruited, she just stands in the back and stares at people. And that's it. There's no real dialogue. There's no, That's just it. I mean, the horsemen don't get any real dialogue once they're recruited. It's just Apocalypse preaching to them. And that's about it. I mean, the best development that happens is once again with Magneto. So... They introduce these characters to be to kind of add diversity to the cast, and they're kind of pushed to the side to focus on Xavier falling in love with McTaggart, make sure to see Jennifer Lawrence without any blue makeup on, and just continue following Magneto's pathos. And honestly, I, cu- I kind of want to cut back. Like, if Jennifer Lawrence doesn't want to do these movies, recast her. It's... It's my whole thing with Natalie Portman in the Thor movies. If she doesn't want to be there, then don't make her be there. Recast her, and if it's if the replacement is good enough, then we'll be fine with it. I guess that's my whole thing. Is and then and like going back to Civil War, Gwyneth Paltrow hasn't showed up since Iron Man three, and they mention her in the background a bunch. But if they don't want to work with her, or if she doesn't want to be a part of it, or Because that's the thing. Comic book fans will completely understand because as long as it resembles the character and it's a decent performance and and good writing, then artists have all entirely different interpretations of a character depending on who draws it. Like, the way Jim Lee draws it is completely different from the way that 
Dwayne McDuffie would draw would draw it or something. Um, I'm not as read up on my artists as as much as my creators and writers, but unless there's like a dictated art style, like what you see with IDW's sort of adaptation comics, like what they do with the Milo Pony, Ghostbusters, Alien vs. Predator, the Godzilla stuff. Whenever they're, unless they're adapting somebody else's property, they have like a specific art style so as to keep within continuity and so that people continue to recognize the character. Whereas in the comics, characters go through all kinds of different design changes and they'll look almost entirely different depending on who is drawing them. So I think comic book fans at least are willing to forgive a recast as long as the person looks the part and is able to play the part and the part is written well. So the only other issue is contracts And if you're signed up for a contract, then it's more of a mess because in the time since she signed on to do multiple movies as Mystique, Jennifer Lawrence has completely blown up as an actress and can do whatever she wants for the most part, it seems. And so now she's demanding less time in makeup and more time as herself on screen. And unfortunately, that kind of defeats the purpose of the character. So... Apocalypse, it's it's about as on par with as Days of Future Past, I think, in terms of execution. I feel like there's more issues with bad marketing, trying to emphasize characters that don't play as much of a part in the movie as they want you to believe. Like, Jubilee had this whole 80s promo commercial for the Xavier Institute featuring uh, some made-up mutant students that she's like, at Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, there's a whole promo for the movie shot like it was on an 80s VHS camcorder or something, complete with like tracking lines and everything. And that was cool. Jubilee's in the movie for like one scene with dialogue where she's making fun of, where she's playing a pun on... Empire Strikes Back and, and Return of the Jedi. And then that's and then she's just in the background. Like she's you never even see Jubilee use her powers. She's there for the iconic look of like the slicker and the big poofy hair. Other than that, she doesn't do anything. Like, if you wanted to have Jubilee in there, if there was no reason for them not to include Jubilee in the fight. I mean, she could easily and I don't know. I guess I never knew Jubilee. Like I said, I'm not as familiar with the X-Men universe as much as the rest of the Marvel universe. So I don't know how Jubilee's character was, how she was written, how she was portrayed, anything like that. I just kind of remember the look. And they got the look, but they don't use any of her powers. She doesn't play any part in the story. It's Quicksilver, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Beast, and Mystique, and McTaggart tagging along trying to save Xavier from Apocalypse, and then the four horsemen, and who, with the main emphasis being on Magneto. So I feel like they wanted to be more diverse, but then still kept the focus on the kind of uninteresting white characters still. And to be fair, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Mystique, and Nightcrawler are more iconic characters of the X-Men franchise. I mean, if you didn't grow up in the 90s, you probably wouldn't have remembered Jubilee because she was more prominent in that 90s cartoon than she was in most of the other iterations of X-Men. 
But it, I guess if you wanted to do it, you should have tried harder to incorporate them more, give them more characterization, make them more interesting. Otherwise, congratulations. You got a diverse cast of people standing in the background while we focus on Magneto and Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Nightcrawler. Cool, I guess. I don't know where they're going to go from here because the other thing is, continuity-wise... In two more, after the 90s one they want to do, they're technically right back where they started. Because that first X-Men movie was in 2000. So if they're going to do 90s next time, that means it technically is going to end with Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen as Xavier Magneto, along with a completely adult cast. So... I don't know what their planning is, if they're going to try and move past where they started and make the throwback not part of... That's the whole thing, is Fox has completely screwed up their own continuity because they haven't had somebody to helm the the story, as it were. Because that's the thing. Fague and the guys working at Marvel were planning this their thing out years in advance, so that's why they've been able to maintain such solid continuity. They haven't had as many hiccups. I mean, Civil War ties it back to freaking Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. And I feel like these other franchises want to have the franchise power that Marvel has where all their movies are multi-million dollar blockbusters, but they don't want to take the time to plan everything out and have like that nerdy kid in the back say, okay, here's the basic continuity outline for you. Follow this. And then they can go off of that. Marvel made sure to do that from day one. So if you guys want to play in Marvel's sandbox, it'd probably be best to try and follow Marvel's lead is all I'm saying. up the sequel to the 2010 remake of Alice in Wonderland the one that I don't think anybody was asking for because that's the thing when that remake came out I was not a fan of it I was friends with a lot of people who loved the design like they were big fans of Tim Burton they love all the weird interesting designs I'm more along the lines with Doug Walker when he did his nostalgic critic review of it where it's not Alice in Wonderland. It's something completely different. And I remember one of my friends was talking about this series called, I think, The Looking Glass Wars, where it was like a dark, gritty fantasy look at Alice in Wonderland. But all of that is completely missing the point of the original storyline, which is, it's nonsense. It's supposed to be nonsense. Lewis Carroll was a, was a pen name for a mathematician who wrote the story to make fun of new math and the idea of irrational numbers and letters as numbers and that sort of thing. And it was meant to be a farce. It was meant to be a satire of what he thought was this terrible addition to mathematics at the time. And that was the whole point of 
through the looking glass and uh, uh, of Wonderland and of the looking glass world. And I feel like the best interpretation was this thing in the 70s, which featured the likes of Sherman Hemsley from the Jeffersons, Scott Bale, who I think was coming off of Happy Days and Joni Loves Chachi and that whole stuff at the time. Sammy Davis Jr., um, Telly Savalas was the Cheshire Cat. Telly Savalas, who was best known as Kojak, you know, the bald, the big bald detective from the, I want to say, 70s or 80s, who's like always sucking on a lollipop. I was like, who loves you, baby? I remember that growing up because people would always reference that. And But then he played the Cheshire Cat. Roddy McDowell was the March Hare. And Sid Caesar showed up. Ringo Starr was in it. Ernest Borgnine. Both Bo and Lloyd Bridges. Carol Channing shows up for a role. Pat Morita was a character. Sally Struthers. John Stamos. And Jonathan Winters. I mean, it's it was a weird, weird, eclectic cast of, like, Broadway and television and all kinds of stuff. And it got the message of, of Alice in Wonderland. It's nonsense. It's crazy. And so they threw in musical numbers where, like, Sammy Davis Jr. is the caterpillar and he blows up and turns into Sammy Davis Jr. in costume. And then he's doing a tap dance. And it's, it's wacky and crazy. And it makes way more sense to the story than what Tim Burton tried to do, which was essentially what that Looking Glass War thing was trying to be, I guess, which is a dark, gritty intense, realistic view of Wonderland where all the characters are warriors uh, fighting a resistance against the evil queen. And honestly, that's kind of taking away what, what, what was fun about Wonderland. The fun of Wonderland was that it was nonsense. It was wacky and it was crazy. And Disney and Tim Burton added too much structure to Alice in Wonderland, oddly enough. So it lacked all the crazy wackiness of it. And they've returned six years later with Johnny Depp still headlining, followed by Anne Hathaway, who only shows up for like four scenes, I want to say. And the whole thing now is Alice, continuing from the end of the last movie, is a captain for a ship, which has been bought out by the douchebag suitor she had from the last movie who looked like like every stereotype for a pompous Victorian British guy only now he's got a mustache he's got like a ginger mustache it looks really creepy and he kind of buys out the mom's house from un while she's away and the mom is continuing the line of, you know, you should be a proper lady. You should not be doing all these crazy, wacky things. And she's brought back to Wonderland to save the Mad Hatter. Because now he's e even mad by Wonderland standards because he thinks his family are alive and weren't killed by the Jabberwocky in a flashback from the first movie. And so Alice goes to meet Time, the manifestation, the anthropomorphized version of Time, who played by Sasha Baron Cohen as sort of a clockwork 
robot cyborg android whatever you want to call him he's cl- he's steampunky and clockwork but it's still Sasha Baron Cohen and she goes to meet him to find the source of all time and wonderland that powers i guess time itself to travel back in time and save the Hatter's family. And also try and prevent the Red Queen from being evil. It's, it's, it sounds crazy and wacky, but it's, it's convoluted as more than anything else. Cause like, they try to, cause whenever you try to do time travel, it's, it's, it's been done. It's been done to death. So unless you want to do something like with what Looper did, where it's a different take on time travel. Here, it's it's like a sitcom time travel or something, you know? It's like, oh, let's look at these characters back when they were little kids. And it's like, oh, here's here's the Red Queen before she went crazy and at, at her coronation or something. And then here are them as all little kids. And, and it's, it's... It's more of that and less, less of what made those stories great and fun and likable and I don't know why they called it through the looking glass I mean why if you're gonna make up an entirely new story why even bother with keeping the name other than notoriety other than people know that name I guess that was my thing is when Alice went through the looking glass it was more more wackiness more more you know it wasn't the regular adventures in Wonderland where it had the Mad Hatter, Cheshire Cat, and the White Rabbit and all that stuff. It was all kinds of new stuff. It featured more folklore heroes like Humpty Dumpty and White Knights and Chessboards. And it was, it was some more out-of-the-box stuff. And I, I didn't hate this movie. I don't hate the remakes. I just think they completely missed the point of the story. And the designs don't make up for that. Like, it's it's pretty. Like, they have this whole... A bunch of sequences with the ocean of time. Where time is an ocean and she sails it like she's the captain of a ship. And that's interesting, I guess. But it, it doesn't do anything. I mean, it's not... It's not so interesting as you want to make that into a movie. Like... That could be an interesting movie for a different fantasy realm, for some other fantasy realm, but I don't get the I don't get why people care about this iteration of Alice in Wonderland, other than it's pretty to look at. And that's what made the first one a whole lot of money, especially in overseas markets. And I have this theory, I don't think anybody else ever talks about it, but and it's probably not even the case, but I feel like a lot of these movies do better overseas, not just because they look better, but because the dubbing, like whatever subtitling or dubbing they do for foreign audiences is probably way better writing than we ever get over here for this kind of garbage. But I guess that's, I mean, visual sequences don't make a movie for me. As much as film is a visual medium, you, you're you still telling a story, you know, it's not like visuals can keep you going without much of a story to keep, you know, to keep you up. 
And if you're not going to tell a story the same way with, like, say, Deadpool. Deadpool didn't have a Citizen Kane level of storytelling, but it made up for that with the visuals, which were graphic and gory and met with and perfect for the character, and the humor. And the storytelling here, the visuals don't make up for that. Like, oh, good, it's pretty. I, I don't care. I mean, I can look at pretty things all over the place on the internet, and I can go to an art museum and look at pretty paintings and imagine, like, worlds set in paintings. Like, I think that would be way more interesting. Like, somebody travels through paintings, and it's an animated movie where everything is... I feel like they tackled this a couple times, where the, somebody... It's animation through these different art styles where you go from, like, cubism to maybe an Escher drawing to, like... Dali and surrealism, or maybe Van Gogh, or things of that name. You know, I think that would be crazy interesting. And the story of somebody traveling through these paintings, like somebody who travels through paintings to get from pla- to get to get places or something, that would make for an interesting story. And the and the visuals would compel that story. You know, that would make the movie interesting. These Alice in Wonderland movies and a lot of the stuff that Disney's remade, like Cinderella and Maleficent, and I'm going to get into all kinds of remake stuff in the discussion portion, but the design work hasn't made up for the fact that the writing and acting don't hold up with the rest of the movie. Like, Maleficent has some of my least favorite writing for that character. It completely botches a basic villain backstory by trying too much to be like wicked which was what they disney was trying to do since frozen with the sort of evil queen characters frozen was the best they it was the closest they got to trying to copy wicked oz the great and powerful didn't work maleficent didn't work and and they tried to make up for it with with the design work and the production design and the graphics and the CGI elements, and that doesn't matter to me. Like, what matters to me is if the visuals can... Like, a visual won't make up entirely if the performances and the story don't also bring something to the table. I guess, like, Pacific Rim would be the closest to what I would allow for bad storytelling and acting that was made up for with the visuals. Like, Pacific Rim, for me, hit a sweet spot where I love the kaiju movies of yesteryear, Godzilla, and I love Power Rangers growing up, and I love the idea of giant monsters fighting each other, and the idea of mech suits where it's guys piloting stuff, like, all kinds... I mean, it's so influenced by all kinds of different Japanese media like Godzilla, like like the different mech suits, and it was so interesting, that world, that I allowed for the fact that it's also cheesy and pulpy and not very well acted or thought out or written. I feel like, and I feel like it's okay because it's trying to be more like that source material because those original Godzilla movies were cheesy and hokey and terribly written, and it was more about giant monsters and the visuals for that made up brought what we all kind of 
wanted out of those old movies where it's guys in suits, where it's these really realistic and well-designed monsters and robots. And, ah, I don't know. So, yeah, Alice Through the Looking Glass, the sequel that nobody wanted to the remake that nobody wanted, yet everybody seemed to pay for. So, go figure. All right, after the break, we will be back with a discussion on Disney remakes. What they've done, what they're planning to do, and what they should do. This time around, I do have an internet connection, and I've managed to make a good list for the discussion at hand. Originally, it was going to be about Fox's X-Men universe, but I don't really know enough about the X-Men to say what I would want out of them the way a fan would. Like, if I could bring in a Marvel and X, especially X-Men fan to talk about what they would want from the comics, from the different animated iterations, to see... What they think, Fo- you know, what they think Fox has done that Marvel couldn't have done better, things of that, things of that nature. I that was the original discussion at hand because I'm guessing Apocalypse is going to be the bigger movie of the two. But eh, I I I'm not into that discussion as much. I don't I don't know what to say. I I I I'd have to do way more research than I really intended to do for that discussion. So I switched it over to something I'm more adept in, which is Disney, and specifically the live-action remakes of their older movies. And where we're going to start is probably their first live-action remake of anything, their first real remake of one of their own properties. Because they've adapted stuff, like, especially in the later years, in the more corporate years of Disney, like the 90s and the 2000s, they've adapted plenty of other people's works, stuff like well, they did Popeye. They did the Popeye musical with Robin Williams back in the day. So they, and a lot of their older stories are based on books and other people's properties. So they're not new to adapting stories, but they haven't really remade their own stories until the 90s. And the first one that I could find out of their ma- list of major motion pictures that they that they made, that, out of the list of Disney's major motion pictures since the 30s, the first real remake I could find was of The Incredible Journey, which was from the 60s, and they remade that in the 90s and called it Homeward Bound. And if you're if you're like me, a 90s kid, you remember Homeward Bound. I don't think you remember I don't know if anybody remembers that it was a remake. I don't think anybody remembers the original one from the 60s that they did, which was essentially the same thing. Only I don't think they added voices. I think that is what a remake should be. Because when you remake stuff like The Fly or The Thing from Another World, old, cheesy, hokey, not well-received stories, and if you can try and do it again but better, that's a good remake. Too many studios, and especially Disney, want to remake stuff that was already popular at the time and have held up. Stuff like 101 Dalmatians. I guess that would probably be on the lower end. I don't know too many people who like that one, but 
Sleeping Beauty, this time from Maleficent's point of view, or Alice in Wonderland. I think people, Alice in Wonderland was the one where, like, wait, we already have an Alice in Wonderland from Disney. We don't need... An, like, I don't... I feel like Disney World is not going to replace the Edwin-style hatter from their parks with the Johnny Depp one, is all I'm saying. I think that's when it's like, okay, you're remaking... Like, they're remaking Ben-Hur, and that's coming out later this summer. And... I don't know why, why, why? We've got the Ben-Hur, that Ben-Hur still holds up. There wasn't anything you can really add to the story of Ben-Hur because nobody remembers Ben-Hur outside of the chariot race. So what are you going to add to it? And that's one of those things where it's like, yes, you own the property and people will remember that name. But like the Point Break remake that came out at the very end of last year, why why would you ever, why bother? Why bother? Because and this and this that was essentially the point because nobody saw the Point Break remake. And if you told people they remade Point Break, they'd be like, "When did they remake Point Break? Why would they remake Point Break?" So that was a useless thing. I and I probably lost the money. And good because screw you. You if you want to do a remake, do something that nobody knows and make it better. Anyway, that's beside the point. After the Incredible Journey was remade, they did do a live action version of the Jungle Book. In 1994, not a lot of people will remember that. I think I saw it on ABC, but I I don't know if that was for TV or if it was for theaters. It was listed among the theatrical adaptations, so I'm guessing it was released in theaters, but it had, like, Carrie Carrie Elways and Sam Neill in it, and I think the animals never talked, but it was Disney remaking The Jungle Book, and it was their official live-action remake, so that, I, I guess, counts. After that was the aforementioned 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close and I believe Jeff Daniels as the as the father husband guy from that. I forget what his name is. And once again, animals don't talk. So I'm not I haven't seen that one. 101 Dalmatians was a cute animated thing. I never was interested in the live action ones, especially that sequel they did, 102 where they had an albino Dalmatian with no spots and a talking parrot to actually have an animal that talks in the movie. None of that interested me in the least growing up. After that, Flubber, which was a remake of an old movie they had called The Absent-Minded Professor. And that was the same storyline, only with some guy named Fred McMurray as the lead. But it's the same thing. Guy invents a rubbery sort of goo substance that he uses to that he uses to stop a corrupt businessman and then we remember more the remake of it starring Robin Williams and I think that one was a lot more fun and people and there's a reason that once again it's an old movie that probably nobody remembers because a lot of those old 60s Disney movies kind of run the same gamut and and like template and a lot of them, like, I was, as I was looking for stuff for them to remake, a lot of them were just, like, starring vehicles for Haley Mills or something where they could feature Kurt Russell in the role as, like, the, as, like, the leading male guy. And, it was, you know, none of, none of them were real interesting stories. It was just, oh, here's a thing. Here's an actor we work, who works for us. Let's make a movie. And then it's like, like, let me list off some of these old 60s movies. Because looking back, there's things in the 50s where it's like Davy Crockett, 20,000 Leagues. They did a version of Rob Roy, 
which I think was done later with Liam Neeson as the sort of iconic... There was a lot of stuff in old Disney that featured Scotland and Ireland for some reason. I don't know what that was about. Johnny Tremaine, Old Yeller, a lot of stuff with Native Americans too, like Tonka, The Light in the Forest. They had... Where was it? I lost it. But there was a whole bunch of stuff. Like, during the 50s and 60s, there was a whole bunch of stuff that featured, like, Native American characters played by, like, Salminio was, I think, in Tonka. And I don't know if you would want to try and remake that stuff now. Darby O'Gill and the Little People. All right, here we go. 70s. Mickey, Wild Dog of the North. Bon voyage! Exclamation point. Savage Sam, which was the sequel to Old Yeller, because, of course, the there was a sequel to Old Yeller, because Old Yeller was popular, so somebody wanted to make a sequel. Those Callaways. That darn cat. The ugly dachshund. The fighting prince of Donegal. Follow me, boys! Monkeys, go home! With exclamation points in the title. Charlie the Lonesome Cougar, the one and only genuine original family band. Never a dull moment. Smith, with an exclamation point. The Boat Nicks. Now we're getting into the 70s. That was the 60s. Now we're in the 70s. The Biscuit Eater. So now you see him, now you don't. Run, Cougar, run. The Bears and I. One of our dinosaurs is missing. No deposit, no return. Unidentified flying oddball. So, I mean, it was stuff like that, and they had some good titles, but none of them made, like, Treasure of Matacumbe. I couldn't tell you anything about that movie. There's a treasure and some guy named Matacumbe. Freaky Friday, the witch escape and return to Witch Mountain stuff, Apple Dumpling Gang. So, but, so, yeah, it was stuff that was so flagrantly obvious as trying to be, it's trying to be silly that it, you can't take them seriously. So I'm guessing a lot of Disney live action stuff was not taken seriously, even at the time. Like I'm guessing that was done because people went to go see it and it made enough money to keep the studio going. So they had to keep it up. Anyway, back to the remakes after night, after 97th flubber, the next year they remade the parent trap with Lindsay Lohan. Interesting enough, because they, they that was a thing from... Because Parent Trap from the 60s was one of those things where they had Haley Mills on call. She was a child actor working for them at the time. And she had like a whole slew of movies that I piled through. I couldn't name many of them off the top of my head. I, I don't remember from the titles. But she was in like probably half a dozen movies for them at the time. And so Disney tried that again with Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Trap. And again, and there was a there's like a five year gap where they didn't remake any of their movies. They adapted newer properties. Like from ninety eight to two thousand three, they were doing things like they like they remade Mighty Joe Young, but that wasn't one of their movies. That was an old RKO movie. It was a tie in to rein in this you know to kind of tag along the success of King Kong, and they they adapted Inspector Gadget. To the to live screen, they did the they started doing the sports movies with Remember the Titans. They had the Princess Diaries. This was the time when Snow Dogs was coming out. The Country Bears, Tuck Ever. So they were adapting 
books and these they had some original stories with like Disney's The Kid, unless that's based on something. They started doing like sports biopics, which they would continue with stuff like Miracle and Invincible and uh, what was the one? Um, Million Dollar Arm. Uh, McFarland USA was their last one, which was about, you know, all these different um, inspire, inspirational sports biopic stories. That all started from that mid to early 2000s era with Remember the Titans. And the next remake didn't come along until 2003 with, once again, Lindsay Lohan in a remake of Freaky Friday. And that one wasn't Haley Mills. That one was, oddly enough, Jodie Foster started started in the same sort of boat as Haley Mills before she kind of gained notoriety outside of the Disney system. With, I think, Taxi Driver was the first time she kind of broke out of that studio system because otherwise she was making Freaky Friday and some other thing where she's like the kid in a movie where she's like the kid and she's going on some kind of adventure and she needs to break out of that and start doing more adult roles as early as like, I think, 13. She was in Taxi Driver. So good for her. Uh, after Freaky Friday, the next remake was was The Shaggy Dog. And they did that with Tim Allen. And that was a whole thing. I never even got that from the 60s where it's like, oh, it's a guy and he's now a dog. Like that never interested me. As a storyline. That was never something I wanted to see. After Shaggy Dog was the their attempt to reboot the Witch Mountain series with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Anna Sophia Robb, who and both of them were kind of on call because Dwayne The Rock Johnson was also doing like the game plan for Disney at this time. And I think yeah, this was, you know, this was the time before he became before his franchise movie started to really you know, make lots of money the way they, once he started, once he joined Fast and the Furious and once he started joining sequels and stuff. But Anna Sophia Robb was also doing, she also was there to do Tuck, not Tuck Everlasting, that was somebody else. Uh, she was there for Bridge to Terabithia, which was one of my favorite books as a kid. And I honestly didn't need like a fantastical version of them. I, I think it would have been much better if they tried not to include the fantasy elements in, that were in their heads. Like it was, like, if you never saw anything CGI or fantastical, and it was just about the kids. But that's just me. After Race to Witch Mountain, we kind of get into more regular stuff. Alice in Wonderland in 2010, I already talked about that. The Lone Ranger, which I believe was a Disney property. I think that was stuff that they did on TV back in the day. They tried that in 2013, and nobody liked it, I don't think. I, I have yet to find a person who liked that Lone Ranger movie. Because, oof. Woof, that was awful. Maleficent, next year in 2014, followed by Cinderella. And this year, we're up to Jungle Book, the new remake with John by John Favreau with Weta and a whole slew of fantastic voice actors. And I dug that remake. I thought it was good, and I thought the way they utilized the songs was decent. Like, I like that remake, and I'll probably remember that one more than that one from the 90s. And the next one coming up this year is Pete's Dragon, oddly enough. Because Pete's Dragon was one of those ones that was an interesting... It was one of those hybrid ones from the 60s. This was, I think, a few years after Mary Poppins. Why don't I see it? Mary Poppins, 64. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, 71. Pete's Dragon, 77. There it is. So, yeah. Pete's Dragon. That's being remade now. 
they're doing a more they're doing a live action remake now, which makes sense. It was a live action hybrid movie, and then they animated the dragon. So it makes sense now to do that with the CG and make it more realistic looking. I think they could do, I think they could make it more interesting because I don't I never really got into that. I think they it was all part of that hokey seventies like really formulaic style that they had. So maybe making it more like I, I, from what I saw from the teaser, it was kind of dark looking. Like they wanted to make it a darker version. So we'll see. They got Robert Redford in it. Bryce Dallas Howard is the mom. Wes Bentley and Carl Urban show up. So we'll see what happens. Uh, this came out of nowhere for me. Like I just saw the poster earlier this year at my Cinemark that I go to. And then I saw the trailer for, I think, The Jungle Book, from, I think, The Jungle Book. And I'm interested to see what happens with it. We'll see what happens with this new version. What the heck, you know, how they'll tackle the storyline this time. It's not going to be a musical, I don't think. I don't think, like, I think they'll probably have a remake of Candle, like, a cover of Candle on the Water for the soundtrack or something. But I doubt it's going to be anything as hokey as that 70s version. And then next year, they've already shown the teaser for it, Beauty and the Beast, starring Emma Watson, with a strangely eclectic cast, with, like, Ewan McGregor as Lumiere, and I gotta say, his French accent is atrocious, even by my standards. Because that's the thing. I'm kind of iffy on accents, I can't tell, for the most part, if it's bad unless it's really bad. And the way he... What if she is the one? Like, it's like it's like Looney Tunes level of terrible for an accent. And, I'm, and it makes me beg the question, you've got comedians that speak fluent French. You've got guys like Alan Cumming, Eddie Izzard. They speak fluent French. Why did you get Ewan McGregor? Like, where was the star power draw for Ewan McGregor as Lumiere? Like, I I don't get that. I don't get the draw for that. But they've got Luke Evans as Gaston. He was best known as Bard the Bowman from The Hobbit. And he was Zeus in that one Immortals movie that the guy... Tarsum Singh did a while back. Emma Thompson is Mrs. Potts. Ian McKellen is Cogsworth. He sounds fantastic in the teaser. Kevin Klein is Maurice, who is the dad. Josh Gad is LeFou, so hopefully he'll be able to make up for the Angry Birds movie because poor guy just, just had nothing. He had nothing for that. So hopefully playing LeFou will cater more to his Broadway sensibility the way that Frozen did. We've got Stanley Tucci as Cadenza, which I'm guessing is an organ. I am learning about this just as much as you are, because I am reading it online, because I have internet now. A grand piano, a new character to the realm who was described as a neurotic maestro. Huh. Well, that'll be fun. I like Stanley Tucci. I'm interested to see how he does as a voice actor. Anyway, um, nobody else I... Recognize somebody, you know, there's somebody as Plumette, the French maid slash feather duster. Somebody I don't recognize as the wardrobe, but she was on, she's been in musicals on Broadway and like, uh, and stuff like Ragtime, Raisin in the Sun, and Porgy and Bess. 
Dan Stevens is the Beast. He's from Downton Abbey, for those who watch that. Monsieur, uh, wait, I, I remember looking this up. Uh, what was he, what was he, um, anyway, the, but the guy that got to play the, uh, I guess the Insane Asylum, the guy that Gaston pays off in the animated one, the guy who's playing him, Adrian Schiller, is a voice actor by trade, it seems. He's mostly seen, like, apparently he's listed as the uncle from the Doctor's Wife episode of Doctor Who. But other than that, it's like Assassin's Creed, additional voices, and da 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 like Fable 3, additional voices. He's He got the oh-so-lucrative role in voice acting of additional voices. Woof. That's when you know you've made it. Anyway, this that remake could go either way. The teaser is just imagery of the castle deteriorating as time goes on. So it looks like they're going to start more with the kid and build up to when Belle comes into the picture. But I'm interested to see how they go about this. It's Bill Condon directing. He is the guy behind the final two Twilight movies, Gods and Monsters, Chicago, Kinsey, Dreamgirls. Gods and Monsters uh, was the one about the gay director. So he's worked with Ian McKellen before. And... What else we got? Fifth Estate and Mr. Holmes. So he is doing plenty of good stuff on his own. So it seems... So he seems to be a decent director. Like, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh was one of his early movies when he broke out from TV to do uh, actual feature film. Wrote Gods and Monsters, was nominated for Academy Award, wrote Kinsey and directed it, wrote and directed Dreamgirls, was brought in to finish off the Twilight Saga. He did The Fifth Estate, the one about Julian Assange, the guy from WikiLeaks. And then he just did Mr. Holmes with uh, Ian McKellen as... So that's the second time he's worked with Ian McKellen, I think, where Ian McKellen plays an old Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock Holmes... The conceit is Watson published Holmes. The, Watson published their adventures under like the pseudonym, I guess, of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But Sherlock Holmes was a real person, and then this is an old Sherlock Holmes solving his last mystery. Essentially, I heard good things about it. I never got the chance to see it, but that's the guy directing the last Beauty, the Beauty and the Beast remake. So we'll see how that works out March of next year, and then. I dug into what they have coming up. Because they got... Who, who did they got a lot of stuff coming up? No, to be fair, none of this was announced. Because most of the stuff that they have announced it are include such titles as Untitled Disney Live Action Fairy Tale Film for July 28th, 2017. As well as a live action untitled Disney fairy tale film for April 6, 2018. Untitled live action film, untitled live action fairy tale film, untitled. They've, they've assigned dates to movies that haven't been made yet. And yet, at the same time, they're also doing the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. There's a Cars 3 coming out next year. Blech. They've got that Moana movie coming out in the fall about a Polynesian princess. 
Next, uh, 2018 has them doing Jack and the Beanstalk as an animated thing like they did with Tangled and Rapunzel. Pixar's doing something about Dia de los Muertos, Toy Story 4, Incredibles 2. And then when we get into the announced stuff, a lot of adaptations of stuff, they want to do Artemis Fowl, they want to do A Wrinkle in Time. But then we get into the remakes, which include, but are not limited to, a Crowbella prequel starring Emma Stone, a Tinkerbell movie, not associated with the animated one, starring Mae starring Whitman, apparently. A Mulan live-action movie. A Dumbo live-action movie. I remember Tim Burton was assigned to that for a while. I, I think that one's dead in the water for right now. A live-action Winnie the Pooh, which, can, which only sounds nightmarish to me. A new live-action version of Pinocchio, because God knows they haven't tried that enough. A prequel to Aladdin about the genie, where they want to reuse unused dialogue from Robin Williams after his death. That is a terrible idea and can only end badly. But they also want to do a full feature version of Night on Bal of the Night on Bald Mountain sequence from Fantasia a live-action version of Sword in the Stone, a, a new live-action version of Peter Pan, as well as new adaptations of their theme park rides, A Haunted Mansion, which is technically a remake, Jungle Cruise, Small World, and various sequels that have been announced to such things as Oz the Great and Powerful, Mary Poppins, Maleficent, The Jungle Book, as well as untitled stuff for Mickey Mouse, a Wreck-It Ralph sequel, a Frozen sequel, and a sequel to Enchanted that they haven't worked on yet. That's a lot to take in, but basically Disney is looking to remake literally everything, it looks like. And literally everything of note. I The only thing I don't see is Bambi, and hopefully SNL tainted the waters for that. The two that did show up that I wanted to talk about and thought they should remake were Something Wicked This Week Comes which I thought would make for a decent remake, and they are working on that, it, t it seems, as well as a Black Cauldron Chronicles of Prydain remake, because they tried to adapt this old kids' fantasy series called The Chronicles of Prydain, which is based on Welsh mythology. It was sort of like a kid's version of Lord of the Rings. They tried to do that with The Black Cauldron. Nobody watched it, so they're going to try and do it again live action, and I think if they do that, it would, be, it would work out a lot better, especially if they get Weta back to do the design work. So hopefully they'll have a lot better this they'll have a lot better luck this time around. But the ones I wanted to, I, the ones I saw that I thought would make for good remakes were Bedknobs and Broomsticks cuz while they're doing a they want to bring in Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins for a sequel and I feel like that's that's almost sacred ground. Like I felt weird when they did the backstory to Mary Poppins. So having a full-fledged sequel without Julie Andrews. Because, I mean, Julie Andrews has vocal notes, and I think she had them removed, so she literally cannot sing anymore. So to have somebody else play the role that made her famous and then sing is almost an affront to her. I doubt she'd care. Like, she'd probably welcome that, because she knows the nature of the business, but... That just feels like, it just feels like saying, hey, Julie Andrews, we're doing a sequel to your movie without you because you can't sing, you old broad. 
and then them sitting back counting fat stacks of cash. Eh, that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But Bedknobs and Broomsticks always feels like the kid sibling of Mary Poppins because it's hybrid sort of fantasy where it features live-action people and animated characters. And I feel like that one was kind of hobbled together from the first two books of whatever that series was that you could do a different version of that today with, you know, somebody, you know, with whatever actress they want to cast to replace. So maybe Emma Thompson, since they've already having her replace Angela Lansbury in voice, maybe have her do this witch character from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. That might be interesting. See them tackle the story again. See if it works better this time. Because I don't remember. I remember seeing bits and pieces of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but I never wanted to see it because it looked like a less interesting version of Mary Poppins. So try that. That's the whole point. That's what I think remakes are for. It's to take something that didn't work and try it again. Which is why I also think they should try The Rescuers. If they want to do a live action, they could do a live action version of The Rescuers this time and try to tell a better story. Because the problem with The Rescuers has a great concept. Mice that travel around the world and rescue kids from whatever harm. So I feel like if they could have somebody... I feel like they could have a lot of fun with a remake to that and then have their own franchise for that with these tiny little talking mice. And it could work out. Like, I could see that working out better this time around. Because that's the thing. The best thing that happened to the Rescuers was the sequel and then nobody remembers it. Because Disney hasn't been able to capitalize on that and do a good something amazing with it. So maybe try a live-action version. The other one is Wind in the Willows, which is either a live-action version or a or like a full-on CG version. Because I feel like that one, they never really fully adapted Wind in the Willows. They only did a short version of it. And I feel like that's kind of missed potential because they, they had that Toad's Wild ride, actual ride for Disneyland, I think, for a long time. And if that was still around, they could easily capitalize on that and say, hey, we're, here's, here's the new Mr. Toad movie. I don't know. I feel, that just feels like missed potential if you haven't tackled it, tackled it and a full scale and try to do more with it. After that uh, is this iconic horror movie, is this iconic little like Star Wars wannabe called The Black Hole. And I never, rem I never heard of it growing up. I've heard a lot of people talk about it as one of their favorites, as like this cult favorite of theirs, because nobody seems to remember it. But the idea of a new space fantasy, a remake of that, people have been clamoring for a remake of The Black Hole since Disney started doing more of these remakes. So they're like, why not remake The Black... So always there's somebody in the back like, why not remake The Black Hole? And then Disney doesn't hear them, so they never do anything with it. The other one I thought was interesting was another cult... Favorite, another cult classic from them, which is a British story. It's set in Britain, and it's about, and I think it was a British book. I didn't hear about it until Doug Walker's Disney Sember, where he covered it as like this weirdly interesting thriller horror movie called The Watcher in the Woods. And I feel like a Disney horror movie could be interesting if they were willing to not go kitschy with it, kitschy with the horror but instead actually allow for some chills and be scary. Because that's the thing. Disney has been spooky, downright, you know, scary at times. 
So I feel like if they if they allowed themselves to do something like The Watcher in the Woods again, that would make for an interesting movie, and it would probably people make allow people to think, oh hey, Disney actually makes something scarier than anything that actual horror directors have made in decades. Good for you. I mean, that would be something. That would be something. I mean, I don't know if they want their nail on it or if they tried to release it through like Touchstone or something, but that would be some. You know, remake that. That's you know that's ripe for the remaking since no not not many people remember it and those that will remember it will be like oh wow they remade that I wonder how it is I don't know the only one that I was questioned about that one, the only one that was questionable to me was Dragon Slayer because that was a co-production with Paramount Pictures and so since they're different companies now who owns the rights to Dragon Slayer but I feel like there was another one where it's trying to be like a political satire of Showing how the how 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 you know power is corrupt and you know they take advantage of other people's works and it was like a strangely like feminist movie where the damsel is trying to save herself I think I don't remember it I remember seeing clips of it in like a Hobbit fan trailer when that was first when those movies were first announced that featured Dragon Slayer clips in it and it was ILM doing a fantastic job with the dragon and I feel like nowadays you could have even more. You would have even more things to do for the dragon character, for the dra- you know, to bring that dragon to life, and you could probably tell a much more, a much more like in depth political sort of satire than you could than you since people weren't expecting that back then. Now, now that that sort of thing can be done, you're gonna you could try it again. That uh, it just depends on who owns the rights, though. After Dragon Slayer, another cult classic, Flight of the Navigator. That was one that, it was some kid finds a spaceship and goes zooming about the galaxy with NASA on his tail. So I don't know if it's any good. I remember it, I remember people saying they liked it growing up, but I don't know how good the original is, and I don't know, but I do think at this point, it's old enough that that most people, most movie-going audiences wouldn't remember it. And so you can try your hand at it again and see if it works out. I feel, and I feel like it's one of the... That was in the 80s, and I feel like it didn't follow a template the way that so many live-action Disney movies went through, like I pointed out with all the stuff from the 70s and the 60s. And I feel like in the 80s, Disney was willing to try different stuff with their live action. Like, that was when they did Tron. That was when they did Something Wicked This Way Comes. That was with Popeye and Dragon Slayer. That was... And that, and then they started going into more of their traditional template with stuff like Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. They found a new template to follow. Like, they could remake The Rocketeer. I think they still own the rights to that. So, if they wanted to try The Rocketeer again, I'd be... I'd be all down for that. That was another one that I hear people are big fans of that I still haven't seen. After that, the next one I have is Tall Tale, which I haven't seen, but I feel like is a great concept for a movie. A kid finds out that all these ancient legends and myths are real. Not like mythical monsters and deities, but folk heroes. Paul Bunyan, John Henry, and Pecos Bill specifically. And... He recruits them to save his ranch from developers. But I feel like having maybe a modern-day interpretation of the folk heroes 
so it's like, oh, people don't believe in folk heroes anymore. Those days are gone, gone. And so this kid goes around, maybe, you know, this probably orphan kid goes around and, 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 you know, goes from home to home. He doesn't feel welcome anywhere. And so he starts to discover all these different folk heroes, guys like John Henry. And he's finding these old folk heroes are still out there. Paul Bunyan's still out there. John Henry's still out there. Pecos Bill is still out there. And he's trying, and they help him kind of find his place. I feel like that would make for an interesting story. So maybe not Tall Tale specifically remade, but I feel like that concept is, it would work for a movie. And then the only other two I think they would work for remakes are The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now stay with me. I know that the book is way darker than the movie. And I feel like nobody's been able to capture the book specifically because nobody is willing to tackle the corruptness of the Catholic Church on film because there will be protests about it because people because the Catholic Church still has a lot of power behind it and influence. So they don't like a lot of criticism. So and Disney probably doesn't want to make enemies with the Catholic Church. So they want they'll probably they probably do the same thing again where he's a very conservative judge, not a priest. But I feel like if they're going to remake any of these live action stuff, don't go for like the stuff with the animated animals or, you know, character, you know, where it's all where they have to do all these different CGI creations. Go for interesting. Go for something that would work better in live action. So I get why they would do Milan. They'll probably remake Frozen within the decade's time. But I feel like Hunchback of Notre Dame does enough where you don't even need... They can probably... I guess that's the thing. The only thing I didn't like about Hunchback of Notre Dame was the cartoonish gargoyles that they had where it was like Jason Alexander as the voice of one of the gargoyles and it was completely out of character. But I feel like having... Gar- having the gargoyles talk to him and make it so that it's all in his head would make for an interesting concept for the story and then let it be dark. Let it be that sort of depressing story that Victor Hugo wrote it to be. And I think that would make for a really intense movie. And to have Disney, and once again, like with The Watcher in the Woods, like with The Black Hole... Dragon Slayer, and to have these really like pushing the limits of what film t- storytelling and what did like to get outside of this the box that Disney puts itself in. I feel like if they're willing to do that, to experiment more, we might get more than just the odd life of Timothy Green. Or to Alexander in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And the last one I came up with was Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Once again, stuff that, stuff with mostly human characters that you could easily tell in live action. That would make way more sense than trying to make the Jungle Book or Dumbo or all this different stuff that featured so much animated, like, anthropomorphic characters. Why go for something like that when you can tell something that's more, that's easier to tell in live action and then expand upon it? Make 
what didn't work what didn't work about Atlantis and the Lost Empire? Was it the story, the timing of the release? Was it the animation style? Were people thrown off by it? Maybe a turn-of-the-century sort of steampunk-inspired adventure movie would work in live action better than it did in animation. That's what I'm saying. That's what remakes should be for. People are, like I mentioned in the last episode with the Ghostbusters thing, people are always up in arms when something of their childhood that they hold as some sort of sacred cow gets remade by Hollywood. And Hollywood remakes everything, has done that since day one. Because it's easier to remake something that you already own the rights to than it is to try and pay out for new IP from authors and from original screenwriters and things of that nature. And even th- and even then, all cinematic storytelling kind of follows the same template. I mean, people talked about this ad nauseum with all kinds of stuff, like how something is this movie in this setting. Die hard on a ship. Die hard with snakes, die hard with this, or Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, da-da-da, Star Wars with a raccoon. So I feel like remaking remaking a movie isn't the problem. That's how you get things like John Carpenter's The Thing, or like David Lynch's The Fly. Like the 310 to Yumu remake, I would have never seen that original one. I probably would have never seen that original one. So it's good to have that remake out there for people to see, and then they can remember, oh, based on this movie, so I can go back and see that. A good remake takes what didn't work the first time and expands upon it to make it better. But yeah, without remakes, you wouldn't have, like, The Birdcage. Birdcage was a remake of a French movie. Like, The Departed, which was not, which may not have been Scorsese's best, but was still a good movie, and it, and it was a remake. that's the thing, there's so many stories out there that you'd be left so, you would never get to experience so many of these great stories if, if, if you said, nope, can't remake a story. So that means, so that means none of these foreign films that probably would never get American distribution would ever be seen. We wouldn't get things like A Fistful of Dollars. And yeah, the problem with remakes is they remake the they remake stuff that everybody remembers. They remake stuff like the hills. They remake they do this especially with horror movies. They re, it's easy to remake something that everybody remembers and try to do it again to tell the same story. And and yet if you don't remake anything, you're missing out on chances to hear different interpretations of these same stories. I'm looking for the list of remakes, thanks to Wikipedia, and you've got things like The Money Pit. The Money Pit was one of the first movies to ever feature Tom Hanks in a starring role. And and it was a remake of an old, of an old, of a movie from the 40s. I think that'll do it for this week. I'm sure we'll talk about remakes again in the future, because Hollywood ain't stopping anytime soon. So, it's time for the plugs. If you're listening to the popcorn 
If you're listening to Popcorn Junkie, you're most likely listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is SoundCloud, and if you want to hear more and keep up with the podcast, follow Popcorn Junkie on SoundCloud.com. I am also on the iTunes Store. If you want to follow the podcast there, just subscribe to it on iTunes. Look for Popcorn Junkie in the iTunes Store. It'll be under the podcast section, and you'll see my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at a movie. And if you want to help the podcast, you can leave a five-star rating and review. Those five-star ratings and reviews help to help me to surge up the iTunes podcast charts and really skew with the algorithm. So the only way to really get yourself noticed on the iTunes store is to rate the podcast five stars and, rev- and leave a review. And if you do leave a five-star rating and review, I will be sure to read it out on the podcast. If you also want to help out the podcast, you can leave a monthly donation on Patreon.com. I'm on Patreon.com under Popcorn Junkie, and with the different reward tiers out there, you can support the podcast just starting with $1 a month. So with every tier, you can help out the podcast however you want, and you'll get a reward back, be it a shout-out on the podcast, the ability to request future reviews for stuff, and, and, you'll, and you'll be helping me out grow the podcast. The first goal I want to do is be able to make a second podcast every week called Make a Better Movie. Basically what that entails is that I will take a movie, let's say, the remake of Alice in Wonderland, or, the X-Men, or any of the X-Men movies, Age of Ultron, the Friday the 13th series, Fantastic Four, any movie that I didn't that didn't quite work for me, I will take a better look at and see if I can make it better from a producer's angle, from a director's angle, and from a writer's angle. If you want a preview of that, you can check out my third episode about Superman, in that I try to make a better version of Superman movies that we haven't seen before. If you so if you want a preview of what that podcast will entail, check out episode three of Popcorn Junkie, Make a Better Superman. And if you want to make that podcast a reality, please support the podcast on Patreon. Leave whatever amount per month is comfortable for you. And if you can't support the podcast financially, you can always follow the podcast on social media. Our social media home is on Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie. There you'll get regular updates on the podcast as well as early reviews for movies that come out. Every time I leave a screening of a movie, I make sure to leave a one or two sentence review previewing my thoughts on the movie. So if you want to follow the podcast, just go to Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie and like the page. Or follow the podcast on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. The Facebook feed goes directly to Twitter, so if you want to fo- so if you want to follow us on Twitter, just go to Corn. Just follow at Corn Junkie Pod, or go to Facebook.com/slash Popcorn Junkie and like the page. And if you want to leave any additional feedback, comments, requests, criticisms, anything at all, email the podcast at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to shout out to you on the podcast itself, or at least answer whatever questions you may have. That'll be it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and hopefully at some point, remaking a movie won't be considered slanderous. song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork provided for Popcorn Junkie by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Go to nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art.
more along the lines of... <laughs> right then. <laughs>